0: Oh my stars, Steve. My stars and stripes. We have some exciting news. Shall we tell them? We should reveal that Chinwag is hitting the road again and going on a West Coast tour. Yes, that's right. If you missed us in your fair city, truly, friends, don't fret, don't fear, don't have a panic attack. (laughs) Do not panic. We will be recording live Chinwags in May in Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle. Yes. In L.A., we'll be at Dynasty Typewriter on May 14th. You can go to chinwagpod.fm slash Los Angeles for tickets. And on May 16th, we're going to be in Portland at Revolution Hall. For those tickets, go to chinwag.fm slash Portland. And we'll be at Town Hall, the great town hall in Seattle on May 17th. For tickets to that, go to chinwagpod.fm slash Seattle. You do not want to miss this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be mighty, mighty. So get your tickets at chinwagpod.fm, and we will see you there. Come on out, Waggers. Come out, Waggers. Come out. <laughs> Come out of hiding.
1: You, you can give me a prescription for booze. Is that, no, That's what you're saying.
2: Well, it sounds like, you know, prescriptions are best when they're specific for you it would have to be bourbon or whiskey. I'm gathering from the previous conversation.
3: This is my doc right here.
2: <laughs> I'm not sure what will be edited or quoted. You know,
3: Jordan has turned this this <laughs> podcast into a thing where he gets like free advice from people <laughs> I, that he would um, normally have to pay for. It's just really it's a sad thing. But look, he doesn't have he says he's rich and I don't believe it. All right. This is a, <laughs> you know, oh, doctor, here's the thing.
1: Wait, no, you know, I, I don't wait, think- wait, 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 doctor, wait well dodger can you can you finish just that if there if there are more no, active I know, ways? yeah I, I,
2: you know if you guys pay taxes, you're paying my salary I'm NIH funded I am happy to give advice. it's not for free. It's what I do love
3: okay, Jordan, so here's what I want to bring up because as i we are getting ready to start this i ran into a discussion you were having with some of your colleagues about elvis Mm -hmm. so my wife and i and one of my daughters we were watching the elvis movie that's now available streaming i didn't know that and i had a, a thing that popped up in my head that i i'd like to know what you think you know we'd always heard that colonel parker uh was a was a horrible guy you know i mean if you say colonel parker we say bad right uh elvis we say good and uh, i mean so here's my, in, in my circles we have a
1: little bit more uh more of a conversation about things we don't like grunt like cavemen when we somebody poses a question but i i understand where you're coming from
3: okay well i try to make it simple you know elvis, I keep good parker bad <laughs> yeah music so so good. here's here's, here's Pay the, for the question music.
1: Bad. Oh, these are artists. They pour their heart into things they're, they're, they're You should be contemplating the ideas around them, not just giving them a thumbs up, thumbs down. Like All right. Can I get Phoenix, to the question? The end maybe you don't no, want to answer. No, it. this it's a podcast. You have to listen to people. Let me get to the end of it. And then thumbs up, thumbs down. Me, like, okay, wh- okay. I'll let you
3: ramble on. Go ahead. Just like <laughs> I, the song. I
1: finished. That was okay. I, now, I now let me ramble. ask you the
3: question. Get ready. For so a... Colonel Parker in, in watching that movie, it made me, it made me wonder whether Colonel Parker had been, would Elvis have been who Elvis was without Colonel Parker? Seriously. <laughs> Wait, you watched that Elvis movie and you were like sympathetic more towards Colonel Parker? No, I haven't, what... finished, I haven't finished the movie. I'm just about halfway or three quarters through. But what it, what it, look, there are so many talented people out there, singers who you hear them and you say, well, why isn't that person famous, you know? It's, it, to some degree it's because they didn't have the right promoter, and if if there was anything that Colonel Parker was, it was a it was a promoter. I mean, he was basic. So the question is, and I know Elvis was led down a, a bad a bad stretch, and you know ultimately with doctors and everything else, he dies. But what role did Colonel Parker have? It's sort of like Brian Epstein with the Beatles. You know, they they said that once they lost him. They just, they kind of lost their way. I don't know if that's true or false, but um, it's, it's an argument. So the question is how much did Colonel Parker have to do with Elvis being able to literally break out and become, you know, this unbelievable mega celebrity? Now, I will say this I am not an Elvis expert.
1: I watched the movie last night as well. Uh, I've watched a few documentaries because I was down in Memphis recently at Sun Studios, kind of got into that Elvis vibe. So, what were you doing not, down there, by the way? I was I was recording a piece for the Daily Show, and I swung by Sun Studios, and they were incredibly kind. They were Daily Show fans, and not to brag, and we maybe even talked about. Oh, that go before. ahead, brag a little bit. Let me Jordan. brag
3: because whatever I do, you just really you know, put me down. But go you ahead. Know,
1: as somebody who is the king of satirical comedy, yeah. uh, I was <laughs> like, "Hey, you guys are cool. This is an amazing place to be." Is it possible if after our shoot, if we came back with a bottle of whiskey and you let us hang out in the studio where Elvis uh, was was found and Johnny Cash recorded and the Million Dollar Quartet hung out and they were like, yeah, totally. And I don't want to get anybody fired because they were wonderful people. But we all hung out right there in that amazing studio, um, drank a little whiskey, talked about Elvis, talked about Johnny Cash, talked about the music of that time. I met Johnny Cash,
3: by the way. I met Johnny Cash. Oh, I bet he loved you. He did. I met Johnny Cash, and I met his wife in D.C., the group of us that went to the small little theater where he was performing. Tell me that's, that's not really cool. But anyway, back to the whiskey. What did he uh, say? What,
1: way, did, what did Johnny Cash
3: say to what you? What did he say I, to me? Yes. He, here's what he said. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. <laughs> now, thanks guess... for inviting me. Thanks for inviting me to the studio. You invite me to a boxing match, you know? How about inviting me to the Sun studio. He just said,
1: come on down. You want an invitation? You want me after the Daily Show to say, you know what, before we have this wonderful situation, let me call Governor Kasich from that state of Ohio to come on down. He loves music. He loves it so much that he weighs in with one word when somebody poses a question (laughs) as to the benefit. Well, let's go
3: back to my initial question. So what do you you think about that whole business of Colonel Parker and promoters and all that?
1: I mean, I think, you know what? I think it's a dirty business. And I think, especially at that time, so many musicians got taken advantage of because there was no clear path to success. I think the story of Elvis, he was an incredibly talented guy. I think at a time where by their own accounts, the stories of Sam Phillips, my understanding, you know what, this was a, a music that was catching hold and having an attractive white man who could sell it was something that was uh, an easy sell. And I think It's, you know, it's what they got glossed over in the film that I was told down at Sun Studios. Elvis walks in there, a late teenager, records a song. Sam Phillips is out of town and they sit on it for like eight months because uh, the secretary at the time who took a larger role in uh, Sun Studios, she loved him. She saw something there. Sam Phillips didn't see something there. And it wasn't until later that they brought him back in and he threw some improv in a studio session with some studio musicians kind of brought up his influences that something really popped then my understanding was that then they literally take that record down to the local dj who plays it like 12 times in 2 hours and it becomes sort of this local uh hit and so you you need somebody obviously to well you need an infrastructure to get this out in front of more people. Yeah, but I think that's, more often that's what I was not, saying. But I think more often than not, the managers aren't crafting what people are responding to. They're just creating the pomp and circumstance around it. And I think I watched that Elvis story and I see him destroying what was an interesting creative talent and making him like just a consumer object yeah. in a way that was, yeah. that yeah. was really well, sad. Well, I haven't
3: finished it. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, but when, we, but when we talk, but wait spoiler, a minute. Well, hold spoiler on. alert, it when doesn't we, end super well. But when we, when we, um, when we talk about ripoffs, look, you think about Bohemian Rhapsody and what freddie mercury I don't, had to do and Rarely had do. and he had to go and he it's look a lot of it is luck luck is a part of life we we'll should ask the doctor about how we should think about about luck and uh, some people have it and some people don't he went then he got this obscure dj to play the bohemian rhapsody because they said the thing was too long and it you know we know what's happened today then you think about more modern day kesha kesha had a lot of problems being able to break away from she said that she was being controlled, I think, by her manager. Uh, you know that Taylor Swift got in this big fight um, over, you know, who had the rights to her stuff. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people today in in any business that get taken advantage of, whether they're NFL stars or basketball stars or or it's why you got to have good people around you. And clearly, with Colonel Parker, he was out to take advantage, uh, ultimately, of Elvis. But um, got to have good people around you. So.
1: You do. And there's a lot of vultures out there who see uh, a potential to make a buck and they they jump on it. It's hard to break into that music industry. And, um, you know, I I think what's actually fascinating about right now is there are they're different gatekeepers and you can get music and sounds out there. Now the promotion side and, you know, knowing somebody with a a checkbook or a Rolodex is still part of the game.
3: But let me ask you this. When you think about the Elvis thing, what I was taken by was when he was a kid and where they lived and, and his, his youth experiences that really shaped him. So you being in the, in the comedy world and coming from Kalamazoo, were you, did comedy, was that a, part of what you witnessed when you were a kid or this whole be able to get on a stage and talk? I mean, did that, you know, does the apple ever fall far from the tree? It's another good question for this doctor. Yeah. Uh, How about you? Well, I mean, personally, I do think, you know, you
1: are, you are a product of your influences in many ways. I think I had a, you know, I fell in love with the world of entertainment and certain comedians uh, initially. The, you know I've, you fall in love with Ghostbusters, then I was it went through a huge Jim Carrey phase and it wasn't until sort of uh, college when I was influenced by sketch comedy and Monty Python, a lot of British comedy in a way that, you know, I was at that point interested in exploring that world. And I think the, the influences and the things that make you laugh, not only are they things that you are attempting to emulate or compare yourself to, it's also the thing that draws you to your collaborators. And I think, you know, that's something that you start to see, um, like, Taste taste draws you to other people with interesting taste. If you look at Bob Dylan, something that's always stood out to me, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, at the time, it was hard to come by old blues albums. So like the albums of Robert Johnson, Dylan was growing up uh, in Minnesota. You have to know friends who know friends, and the cool kid in town has that one Robert Johnson album, and he hangs out with the other cool kids in town who feel like outsiders, and they're into weird blues music, and so they become friends. And you see these interesting pockets pop up, especially around a time when you didn't have access to these influences. You see pockets pop up of people who actually knew each other growing up because they felt like outcasts who were seeking out, whether it was record stores or the cool kid in town, who were seeking out other people who were also seekers looking for these influences. And so that starts to create a scene. Shared taste kind of creates influences. It creates competition. And then you add a little bit of opportunity and some ambition to
3: it, and you got yourself uh, a movement. Well, listen, we've we've got a very uh, distinguished guy as a guest today, and he's got— patience and everything i did want to get into that uh, is a good listen joke. i did wanted to get into you, did, 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 you know you yeah, both did? ways yeah you know what i say did? about you know what you know if i tell people who are nursing school if you're a good nurse you know what you need patience and they're like okay. yeah you have to really be calm i said no but anyway why don't we go ahead and try to bring this uh bring this gentleman on that's right we're just going to talk elvis for the next hour get ready folks um, no,
1: I'm, I'm very excited about our, our guest today. I read some articles, and he has a fascinating book that kind of shifted the way I think about stuff. He's a neuroscientist and the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University. And he's known for his work in Alzheimer's disease and cognitive aging. His book, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering, focuses on the beneficial aspects of memory loss. So we're excited to have Dr. Scott Small join us today. Dr., how are you?
2: I'm doing well. Please call me
1: Scott. Scott, I ho- how soon can I forget the hot takes the governor has about music? Is, is there any way you can expedite that process as a doctor?
2: Yeah, there are ways. And it's actually an interesting question because, uh, as you say, I, I, I am a neurologist who could be boiled down to, be, to being considered a brain mechanic. Uh, mechanically, I've been trying to think of the levers to pull to cure Pathological forgetting, Alzheimer's, and aging. But as I've uh, covered the book tour on the benefits of normal forgetting, and maybe we get into that, what's the distinction, more and more people have been asking me the doctor's question. Well, okay, I'm convinced normal forgetting might be beneficial. How could I, what levers can I pull to uh, expedite that? And, and there actually are ways, uh, but of course in the brain, it's never simple.
1: Well, let's explore that a little bit right now. So for, for our audience, you hear forgetting, and I think culturally we see forgetting as a deficiency. It's something that at all costs we're trying to escape from. Uh, but what you argue within this book are the benefits of forgetting. Can you kind of lay that out for us?
2: Yeah, and that's you're absolutely right. So, I mean, I started my career. Uh, interesting hearing how you started your career, by the way. The one interview, I'm sorry, I said no to back in the day was to John Stewart. We can talk about that offline. but the,
1: <laughs> something, something you clearly did not forget. That has stuck with you.
2: Because I'm generally sorry, and I thought I did it for the right reasons. I turned out to be righteous. One should never be righteous. But um, the, you know, I entered my career. I think most people enter their career, whether they're memory doctors or memory scientists, with a singular view that all forgetting is the same, whether it's the forgetting that my patients I saw this morning suffer from, or the forgetting that we're all born with. It's all the same. It's the rusting of the memory mechanisms in the brain. And the book was inspired by new science. I wouldn't just write a feel-good book. It's not my bailiwick. It's not my temperament. But it's based on the new science that emerged in the last 10 years that actually the brain is endowed with specific mechanisms in our neurons, in our brain, to uh, accelerate forgetting normal forgetting the forgetting we're all born with we all have we all complain about that is categorically different than the pathological forgetting that my patients experience
3: doctor you well first of all let's just talk about the brain for a second i i've always sort of felt you know i know we're going to go back to the moon we're going to get to mars everybody's excited about that and i mean we should be excited about it but i sort of feel that the next frontier is the discovery of the brain how little do we know how much more is there to be uncovered by uh, people in your field and what can it mean for things like uh drug addiction obesity um uh, any i mean it's a whole uh a whole variety of things right i mean the brain if it gets unlocked it can yield so many things to help our society or, or you tell me where you think we are how far along are we
2: well, well, first of all, John, I, I agree with you. I've committed my career because of the fascination in the brain and because I think it's generally acknowledged as true at, at, that it is the last frontier, at least uh, uh, in, in in the body, uh, in science. Uh, and it expands from not only unlocking ways to cure disease, and miss the ones, but also Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, the ones that I right. read. um But it's also important for society, consciousness, why we sleep, uh, why we forget. So all those questions, uh, uh, I like the way you phrase it, have to be unlocked. They're being unlocked, they're being unlocked slowly and in different ways. Uh, I can talk a little bit about how there is now a cautious optimism that we're finally unlocking the mysteries of things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So that's something that I can speak with authority about, less so consciousness.
3: Well, how far along are we in that? There's so many families, I mean, you know, so many families in this country that are suffering, uh, seeing their loved ones uh, begin to develop this disease. How, How far along are we in terms of being able to come up with an answer? I mean, that's like, you know, the million dollar question, right?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a super important one. Obviously, we all know people, not only the patients I see, we all have family and friends who suffer from these from these disorders. Um, I will say, John, uh, you know, I'll use a politician's uh, phrase that I refrain from using. These are Soviet politicians who always had the five-year promise, right? And yeah. somehow doctors borrowed that. We always said within five years, there's something about five years that's far in yeah. the future. But what I can say, the reason why I myself have have shifted from abject pessimism just 10 years ago to cautious optimism uh, is because of the way we think of the brain. So I already invoked the mechanics logic, just like any car mechanic. uh, You're never going to fix a broken car unless you know what's fundamentally broken. And in the brain, it's true. In biomedicine, it's a sort of truism cliche. And so only recently have we really can we begin to say that we know what's fundamentally broken in Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease? Not 10 years ago, not 20 years ago, there's been attempts and there's been honest attempts and vigorous attempts, but only in the last 10 years has the field as a whole felt that we know the fundamental parts in our brains, in our neurons that are broken. Once we have that locked down, let me remind you one of the really interesting lessons from COVID, once you know the pathogen, once you know what causes a disease, the biomedical enterprise which includes industry and academia can find a cure pretty rapidly so that's why i'm cautiously optimistic
1: i want to actually talk a little bit about about COVID. we went through this pandemic this trauma you actually wrote an op-ed for the new york times we will forget much of the pandemic and that's a good thing um talk to me a little bit about that we had this cultural trauma that we are dealing with how much should we be learning from that? And how much is it better for us as a society to have this, this natural shedding of memories? And where are we on that path?
2: Yeah, that, and that's a good way to kind of uh, segue perhaps into normal forgetting. Uh, and for those who read the article, it wasn't that we should forget anything. God forbid, I, I emphasize, and I suffered here in New York personally and as a doctor with the true suffering that we should never forget the loss of friends, family, uh, the lessons we should learn whether it's public policy or medical lessons, so we don't repeat the mistakes. Those are clearly things that should be uh, etched in our collective memory and our personal memories. But the point of the book, actually, Jordan, is that there needs to be a balance between memory and forgetting. And so I borrow from the lessons learned in PTSD, a common affliction, sadly. And PTSD is in many ways, one should be careful of simplifying any disorder, but in many ways, it's the canonical go-to example of a disorder in where the normal forgetting mechanisms have broken down. Alzheimer's is an example where the memory mechanisms have broken down, but PTSD, particularly in the emotional memory realm, that's where combatants, soldiers, anyone who suffered uh, a traumatic experience can't let go, right, of the negative memories. Letting go is one of the many colloquialisms we use in our common language that actually refers to forgetting. Let go of something means to forget. So we all intuitively know that. We know anyone who's been married knows that you need to let go sometimes. Letting go, that forgetting is critically important. And in the article, I talk about how uh, in order to really remember the important stuff, we need to better let go and forget the emotionally charged stuff. Otherwise, we're in sort of um, total recall day in, day, day day out on the sort of emotional stuff. And that will really prevent us from remembering important stuff.
1: I guess when we talk about that, theoretically, are there active choices? Like if somebody reads that article and agrees with it, when I think of letting go or or forgetting, it does feel like a, a passive action, especially forgetting does in my mind. Um, are there active ways to do it? I mean... I'm not asking for a prescription for booze, although I would take it. Is that would be maybe my first path? But can somebody be proactive about forgetting? Or are we still just talking about a a natural process?
2: Well, uh, like I said at the get go, even if it's a natural process, if it's broken, I I am perfectly within my rights as a doctor to try to fix it. So if people are so you, it-
1: you can give me a prescription for booze? Is that well, that's what you're saying?
2: Well, it sounds like, you know, prescriptions are best when they're specific. For you, it would have to be bourbon or whiskey, I'm gathering from the previous conversation. This is
1: my
3: doc right here.
2: <laughs> I'm not sure what will be edited or quoted. You know, Jordan has
3: turned this, this <laughs> podcast into a thing where he gets like free advice from people <laughs> that he would normally have to pay for. It's just really, it's a sad thing. But look, he doesn't have, he says he's rich and I don't believe it. All right. <laughs> you know, doctor, here's the thing.
1: Wait, no, you I, know i, I don't dr wait well dodger can you can you finish just that if there, if there are more no, active I know, ways yeah,
2: I, yeah. I, I, you know if you guys pay taxes you're paying my salary i'm an age funded i'm happy to give advice it's not for free it's what i do love so oh. um here's here's the answer Jordan. there are a lot of ways in which we can now accelerate the normal forgetting there you go really the most important thing is sleep and maybe we get to that if we have time sleep the thing we do You know, a third of our lives exposes us to the dangers of the environment. Why do we do it? We can answer a high school student. Why do we eat? Why do we drink? Why do we rest? But why do we sleep? One of the answers is it because it induces smart forgetting. It allows us to forget and clear the slate. Otherwise, our brains are sort of um, uh, bonkers with too much information. Medically, there are ways. And if I use PTSD as an example. So you might know that there are clinical trials now on drugs that have conventionally been considered recreational, MDMA, ecstasy, LSD. These are drugs uh, that have shown, particularly ecstasy, MDMA, has shown the mechanism is known. It particularly, what it does among its many things is it induces the brain areas that store emotional memories to relax and forget. And if... None of, no one on this call has ever taken ecstasy, I am sure. But if you want to know what the benefits of social, of forgetting is, speak to anyone who has. The testimonials are you feel pro-social, you love people more. Love, that word is invoked. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, an interesting testimonial on how a brain that's bogged down with too many emotional memories, it lives in misery. So emotional forgetting is there. You can manipulate it with natural uh, endeavors like sleep, uh, and and there are some clinical trials that are tapping into the new science of forgetting.
3: Well, you know, uh, Doctor, the, the PTSD people, you know, hear about it from for our soldiers, but they don't understand how many of our of our service people are trapped in this and how tragic it is. And it's it it needs to, again be something that we have to uh, we have to put the spotlight on because it's 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 terrible.
1: We'll be right back.
3: And now back to the show. Look, there's two other areas. You were talking about, uh, well, you talking about accelerating uh, discovery. Do we put enough money? Does NIH put enough money? And you're an NIH-funded guy, you may not want to say. I've never felt as though we put enough money into this brain research. Secondly, I'd like to know what your thoughts are on deep brain stimulation. I have a friend down at WVU who works at the Rockefeller Institute and he's been involved in deep brain stimulation and he was able with some alzheimer's patients to basically return them pretty much to normal, which was shocking when i when I first learned of it. I actually had him in my cabinet uh, room to talk about this. He believes that and it, it's more sophisticated than just deep brain stimulation it can affect uh, alzheimer 's as well. Uh, including things like addiction all using the brain give me a give me a sense of uh of, of what that could what that could mean so
2: first on funding his, is- and his
3: name is ali razai he's a great guy he was at uh, cleveland clinic then he went to ohio state now he's at the rockefeller center at wvu working with uh, gordon gee and clay marsh and i I love this guy. He's got so many things he thinks about, and he never stops working because he's so excited about the breakthroughs that he thinks that he can be part of.
2: Yep, same. That's same. That would describe my life. And my wife, uh, if she was on, she would uh, complain about my 18-hour days. But we love it. So it's not workaholism. It's fun uh, and important. But on on NIH funding, uh, yes, I am funded. Uh, the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center is funded by the NIH, NIA. Um there has been the sense that maybe there needs to be more uh, funding for this critically important field. That has happened, John. I'm not sure if you were part of that effort. Uh, but, yes, there has been a lot more money. So the, the National Institute of Aging, which is the division of the NIH that's focused on, on Alzheimer's, has received a lot more funding just in the last few years. So there has been a political awareness. Now, we can debate about whether it's enough. Does it meet yeah. the same Right. Yeah, that cancer received in the 1970s and 80s, obviously, we can always use more, but I, I don't like to complain. And I'm, okay. I'm well, so and I think many of us are there clearly could be more uh, a more concerted effort on deep brain stimulation. Absolutely fascinating. I, 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 I love that field. I, I send particularly I think you might have meant Parkinson's and Parkinson's. It's now the standard of care. If drugs don't work, Yeah. You don't understand. You talk about unlocking the brain. The brain is a circuit, is a network. It's complicated, right? It's not just, not, not to um, uh, be dismissive of my cardiology colleagues, it's not just pumps and, and valve. <laughs> I'm sure I'll hear back from them, but it's a complicated network, a circuit, an electrical organ. And the unlocking there required basic science to understand exactly where to place these electrodes. Um, I can imagine you can still hear me. I just saw some shifting, yes? Yeah, no,
3: I, yeah, yeah. listen, okay. yeah, doctor, and what I want to do, because if you do have an interest in it, is is to get you information uh, and have you be able to talk to Dr. Razai because his whole process has become more and more sophisticated from where it was, and uh, and I think he's getting pretty good results. Too. Yeah,
2: so deep brain stability, the way anyone should see this is that we should be humble in the face of the task at hand. Every approach should be uh, uh, legitimate and should be invested right. using scientific rigor. Deep brain stimulation, certainly for Parkinson's disease, uh, maybe for normal cognitive aging. Uh, I know I have colleagues who are doing this from Alzheimer's. The data is not clear to, them, to me yet, but we're all open-minded. No one should yeah. have their pet project uh, take precedence over anyone, particularly when you have to look the patient in the eye. It's all about the patient, not about right.
1: Uh, I'm curious now in your book you talk a little bit about uh, when we we look at normal forgetting uh, you talk about that as a creative endeavor and you even connect uh, <laughs> creatives as being exceptional at forgetting i'm curious I'm curious what that means is, is it mean you have to or that a an active mind that is 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 uncluttering leaves itself open for more inspiration like how how is this something i mean i'm asking for a friend myself yeah. how do i find inspiration through the process of forgetting and how necessary is that in a, in a creative mind
2: for yourself as an artist for my wife as an artist and frankly i think good science is artistic uh and, and so it all relates and in fact the and, and in the book, I had the pleasure of interviewing and talking with Jasper Johns, you know, arguably uh, the greatest artist, uh, living artist in the United States. Um, and it's something that's always been interesting to me. And the testimonials of, of, of the genius artists, scientists, mathematicians has always led to the final following conclusion, which gets to the heart of the book. That it's not just memory. Yes, you need to wash your mind with visuals, with music, with whatever you're, you know, with data, if you're a scientist. But if those um, that information becomes too concrete in your mind, you, have, you never have that inspirational uh, eureka moment of the unexpected connection. And so the testimonials, time and time again, point to the requirement of having memory on the one hand. We talked about that but also having forgetting on the other to keep those memories loose and playful in our minds so that you, that eureka moment is more likely to happen. That's where for, for forgetting plays a role.
1: I'm actually curious if we expand that a little bit, you're, you're kind of talking about a, a plastic or an elastic mind that is both uh, able to let go and able to remember. The governor and I, were in this political world and we're constantly talking about the space that we are in. I wonder when you look at that, it feels like I have frustration with what I see uh, both people unable to learn from the past. I know learning is different than just normal forgetting, but also it does feel like um, uh, there are people who also cling to certain to certain things and ideas in a way that aren't leaving them open to discover a moment that we're in or a place that we're in. How do you look at the political landscape from your perspective and see forgetting taking a taking yeah, a role? I
2: mean, as, as you guys already discovered, I would take a pass if it's not relevant to my interests or my book, but it happens to be. So, the, you know, I try to illustrate the benefits of the balance of memory and forgetting through new insight from psychology, neurology, psych, computer science. But the last chapter is on the philosophy of the benefit of forgetting and it very much deals with the issue of xenophobia so it was really a unique pleasure of mine to read johannes hoffer's thesis 1688 who wrote on nostalgia that's where nostalgia was born it's
1: great we all love that that's a that's a favorite for all of us the governor and and i talk about that thesis almost every podcast
2: (laughs) (laughs) i'm wearing my white coat i could be a little bit uh recondite but but you should read it and I'll read the read the chapter because I break it down. He's basically describing nostalgia as a disorder of the mind that is too obsessed with our personal backgrounds. He, he quotes it, it, We can't let go of mother's milk. We can't forget mother's milk. It is a great um, paper to read uh, and maybe broken down in the book on how it relates to today's environment, whether it's extreme xenophobia or tribalism or the political polarization that I know uh, Governor uh, Kasich cares very much about, it's all related into a certain extent. And so in that chapter, if I, the previous chapters were how the balance of memory and forgetting are needed for our own personal minds. There's also something called collective memory, right? And let's not forget that um, society has forgiven and forgotten Think of South Africa. It's a process. But I think we need to engage the collective memory forgetting balance to really heal what I think I feel is a, uh, a suffering nation.
3: Dr. Jordan uh, said something. I've been thinking about it in the last podcast. He, he was making a comment that it's, it's hard for people because of the social media structure for people who have, and I don't mean boring, but a kind of a middle approach a more peacemaker approach. Um, what do you think it is? And I find that th- that to be a really interesting comment that we can't get out of our own way because we're, we're sort of stuck here. What is it about the brain that forces us to look at extremes? You know, you go to a boxing match, you want to see a knockdown, you go to a car race, you want to see a crash. I mean, that's what you you hear all the time. You, um, is there a way to overcome that? Is there a way to make peacemaking more exciting? Or is our brain wired in such a way that we, we just we leap to those things that, are, that exist on the extremes?
2: Well, obviously the brain is, is hardwired for the flashbulb memory, you know, whether it was Kennedy for you and I, John, or uh, 9-11 for our younger colleague here, Jordan. We all remember those things, and so that just gets to the point the brain encodes, you know, flashbulbs. But what I think is most important in trying to engage forgetting for the societal balance, I do think that we're uh, off kilter. I think we're all obsessed with our own personal uh, collective memories. And one way you were asking, Jordan, how to kindle the natural rebalancing to bring forgetting back in is something, John, I know you know. Uh, you just maybe not have thought of it in terms of memory and forgetting. And that's just socializing, right? The, um, the political effort, the uh, ambassador effort, the peacemaking uh, uh, meetings, these have proven in science When two people sit down, two people who might hate each other sit down, look into each other's eyes, you immediately. And there's actually science behind that. Not everything needs to be explained neurologically, but there's actual mechanisms for why. If two people dislike each other, entrenched in their views, you sit them down in the same room. They relax because it it, it causes the uh, emotional memory areas of the brain to relax, to forget. And that has been shown time and time again. Uh, as you probably know very well, you know, World War II and racism, it was a real uh, step forward because people from different colors had to fight together and live together. And, and and so, you know, the examples better than I. I can only provide the neurobiology of why socializing is so very important. One of the problems and I'll, I know I might be a little long winded here. One of the problems with COVID, Jordan, you were asking about it. I point about that. I, I point i touch on it in my new york times piece is that there was a double whammy during the pandemic covid was a trauma for many clearly if socializing is a way to prevent our memories from burning too hot that is actually john part of the standards of care for ptsd don't have these poor soldiers live in isolation so we need to socialize to engage our our emotional forgetting This has been the problem with COVID. We were forced to socially isolate. And there's this real expectation that my psychiatry psychology colleagues are gonna see a very specific form of PTSD that is related to the pandemic. So the simple answer, John, is try to keep the the socializing, your effort of keeping both sides of the uh, aisle, communicating, sitting down, eating together, having whiskey together.
1: Uh, well, I want to expand on this because I do think this is interesting. The governor, what we were talking about recently, is this idea that the the platforms for us to have in depth conversations in and of themselves are not beneficial to um, to moderate points of view for nuance. They 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 lean towards hyperbole, and so that these these platforms dictate a really a really dangerous type of communication. And so, from your perspective, neurologically, I'm curious. One, how does social media affect memory and forgetting? And two, I'm i I'm guessing it doesn't have a great effect on the brain. But two, I'm wondering if you zoom out on that. Technologically speaking, have we had a technological advance in media, television, social media, the Internet, that has in any way been beneficial to that process or is inherently any kind of technological advancement that we've had in media communication working against what is going on up up top?
2: Yeah. So first, uh, let me just bring this back to neurobiology. Again, always dangerous to simplify But there is a neurobiological mechanism where if we meet each other in person, that it relaxes our biases, relaxes our fears. And it's called oxytocin. You might have heard of this. It's sometimes called the love hormone, which is wrong. But there is hard science in our top journals that have shown that just eye-to-eye gazing will cause each of us to secrete oxytocin, to emotionally forget, and to become pro-social, to become less, less hyperbolic, as you're describing, Jordan. In fact, I'm not sure if there are any animal lovers on the call, the same is true for dogs. That was a science journal That uh, article that was fantastic. So there is neurobiology, for why socializing is so important. It, of course, does other things. Here's the interesting question, uh, Jordan. We're Zooming now. We're looking into each other's eyes. I'm willing to bet, I don't know if that study has done, that our brains know better. Our brains are not now secreting oxytocin if that is the proxy for for pro-social benefits. And therefore, I would say, let's try to get back in the same room. Let's have uh, real 3d meetings to engage our brains forgetting mechanisms
1: do you but think though you, if but if but we look at like sorry if we look at like social media as a mechanism uh, beyond it being something that's done solo and not you're, you're talking to people but not having that connection, functionally it does feel like there is a glut of information that you're receiving and if if part of the process of memory and forgetting is sort of weeding through the things that you don't need to survive but now we're we're being flooded with information in a way that we never have before are you seeing ways in which that is structurally changing our brain
2: i i i haven't i'm sure the studies if not have if not done already will be done because it's a clear societal question two quick points clearly the flood of information is never good uh, on why we need to sleep to unclutter our minds and so if that's adding to the clutter and it's typically not necessarily curated information, right? And then on the other issue that to me seems to ring more true is that people are doing this in isolation. So if someone really had something to say, I'd prefer to hear hear them say it in a conference meeting or at a bar. And, of course, social media doesn't accommodate that.
3: Well, the problem we have, Doctor, is that people, we have like, you know, hundreds of millions of people. We can't just get them all in the same room. And, in fact... When you take a look at some of these these polls, and I always have a look at any poll with a grain of salt, you know, I don't I'm going to move to where the people who think the way I do, you know, live. I'm going to I don't want my kids marrying somebody of the other political persuasion. I mean, we don't have an opportunity with the current media to have people actually be in the same room. And so they get fed this extremism, you know, and and that fires them up. And then there's an inability of people to be connected. Now, I also happen to think, though, that intuitively that people want peace. They don't want to be in a constant state of fighting. People do want to feel comfortable and relaxed and, uh, you know, and really connected to somebody else once you get through the early stage i guess that's kind of what you're talking about in terms of meetings that's what melts it down right
2: well, i could could i just offer you know I, I, way out of my bailiwick and recommendation i wonder what you think about this governor I'm, i have a feeling you have strong feelings the best way to instantiate that social networking that true social connection now that we don't all go to the military now that the we don't all go to the peace service is to have a few years of a national effort. Yeah. To do something. I really yeah. think that it, that will on the neurobiology will establish the networks, the true connections. Uh, and of course, I think it's also important for us as Americans to feel like we're, we're unified. Uh, I have a feeling you have strong feelings about that.
3: Well, I, you know, we, I was working for a short time with the, with the, um, National Veterans Museum here in Columbus, Ohio, and we're trying to figure out ways to actually make it more relevant. And um, one of them is to offer our soldiers a concierge uh, service for, to help them get jobs and you know, embrace the family, which would, would help in many different ways. But the other one was the issue of volunteerism. I don't know if you're going you're gonna to ever, you're not at this point in time be able to pass something that forces it, but if you could create incentives for it, um i think you're absolutely i absolutely think that this is an issue that time has not yet come but might come because i that's you're you're just really saying you're putting people together who didn't know one another or didn't even like one another all of a sudden to find out that they do that was the value of playing basketball uh, in the gym when i was in congress the value of having dinners and yeah i mean i I get. I do
2: think some form of national service seems right. Yeah. Of course, it's complicated. You can't force it. But if you make it attractive, I can't tell you how many emails I get from impassioned 13 year olds Dear Dr. Small, I'm obsessed with Alzheimer's. I want to work in your lab. And they don't. It's their helicopter parents who are saying, Look, we want you to go to a grade school. Try to yeah. get a gig with Dr. Small. <laughs> I, I think psychologically, so I grew up in Israel. I think psychologically, Having that break from the assembly line of high school to college, uh, and I know it's hard to do, but I encourage that with all my friends and family, have your kid, instead of spending a $100,000 in a party school, have him travel the world, have him engage in, in, in others. Uh, and uh, I'll leave it up to you politicians to implement that.
1: It's interesting. I, I did an interview with Sebastian Younger, who's a war correspondent. Uh, and spent so much time, he wrote a book called Tribe that looked at sort of the way in which we think. And in asking him this question, he had the same answer about the, the year of public service and a, a way in which to look at it, which I do think is under-discussed in in conversations here, uh, which is it's a real bummer. I mean, I would never do it. I would never just give a year away like that. Uh, my, my public service was on the improv stages. I worked for free to give people the gift of comedy. So maybe, maybe I, in some ways I did it.
2: But You did. And and my wife also. She worked in Atlantic City as a singer when everyone was off to, to college. But if you make it not a public service. They
3: say if you could make it there, you, you could make it anywhere. That's, I've heard that said. I'll, I don't I'll know. Let
2: but I think it could be done in a way that it seems appealing, you know, not as a sort of like a burden. As Right. Agent.
1: We'll be right back. And now back to the show.
3: Doctor, I, I, I want since you're both a researcher and also you're someone that spends time with patients, how does somebody in your field... Um, whether they're a, a trained social worker, whether they're a psychologist, whether they're a, a psychiatrist, how do you avoid burnout? How can you go the long distance? Uh, because your profession is so tough. Calls coming day and night, and you know people are helpless and panicked. And what is the best advice you have for people who want to enter this field uh, without experiencing uh, a significant burnout in a short period of time?
2: It's a really interesting question, John. Uh, you know, I, I'm enjoying this u- more than usual just because you know the free-flowing conversation, but also because of the unexpected question. That certainly is one of them. I, 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 I do think uh, you know, John, you were talking about nurses. I do think one has to realize, no matter where you are as a healthcare provider, it's a team, and maybe it comes back to the socialization we were, t- or the socializing we were talking about earlier. The people who don't burn out are the people who really work as part of a center or a group. And there is no hierarchy between the MD, the nurse, the nurse practitioner, the social worker. We're all in this together. Those are the people, I think, who just feel that um, they are part of a, uh, a, a, an important effort. Clearly, they are. Uh, it's the doctors who work in solo that I sometimes see faster burnout in. Now, again, I'm not an expert on this. There are a lot of public health uh, 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 scientists who think about this, but that's my my view, John.
1: Forgive me if this is a stretch, but uh, sort of inspired off of that idea. I'm curious, you have looked and you've talked about the new research that you wrote your book about, which is, is sort of shedding light on this idea that perhaps we don't focus enough on the natural ability to forget the information that we learn. Perhaps there's been too much effort put into the memory portion, or at least thought put into that. And I wonder, as a doctor who's gone through rigorous years of training, looking at education in general, did it color your view of the way in which you were taught and the, the rigors of uh, uh, memorization and the things that were were given certain import as you've discovered uh, perhaps an uncluttered mind leads to, to a better life or perhaps a, uh, a moment of inspiration? Do you see there's a Uh, Did you see your schooling in any different light?
2: Uh, Actually, interesting. I I, I hate to be the guy who keeps on referring back to his book, but I guess that's what got us together. You got to do it. You
1: got to do it. It's a great book. It's called Forgetting. And here's the problem. Embedded in it is the idea that people listening to this right now, they may just let it go and that's okay. So you have to keep hitting it.
2: But there is, that, there is a chapter, uh, and there, every chapter I, ha- I try to have someone who can guide me through complex questions there. I was lucky to know Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner on decision making. And I shared with him uh, a patient of mine. This was a fellow doctor who was an infectious disease expert. He came to me. He said, I think I have bad memory. How could I be a good doctor? And so what that led us into... And, and we tested his memory and his memory was really bad, not pathological, but sort of on the short end of the stick, right, on the normal distribution. And yet he succeeded and he's a world-class physician. I call him Dr. X, because I can't say anything more about him. But um, what, we, what, what that led into is this idea of intellectual humility. It's a term, it sounds like a, a, a sort of compliment and it's not meant as a compliment. It's meant that people who have really outstanding memory tend to jump the gun. And Danny Kahneman writes about people who make quick decisions and often get it wrong. Now, of course, if you're a air force pilot, if you're an ER doc, you need to make quick decisions, but a diagnostician like me, I have the benefit of two days before I can cogitate, think and revise the ability to change your mind requires forgetting. And that doctor I think turned out to be a exceptional diagnostician because he actually had, uh, good, normal forgetting. So uh, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I think it's relevant. Honestly,
1: but I'm gonna even underline the thing you just said right there. The ability to change your mind requires forgetting. I. I've been asked a billion times, I go to Trump rallies and people ask, have you ever changed anybody's mind? Do you change people's minds? Do their minds get changed Do their minds get changed? And sadly, I see very few examples of it. Is that one of the key elements that I'm missing, that we are we are losing? We're, we're, we're trying to change people's minds uh, through more information as opposed to uh, bonking them over the head, hoping that they lose some sort of memory and then giving them new information. Is that what I should be doing?
2: Uh, that's. I would like to say that as you know, that seems a little bit wrong to me. I think what 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 the uh, governor has dedicated his life doing. Courageous stand,
3: e- courageous stand there, doctor.
1: <laughs> MDMA. How about MDMA? Maybe if I'm if we do MDMA with these folks, we could get to a better place. You
2: know, the echo chamber problem. We know it. It's called in a, the fancy word, Jordan. You might know. Maybe you, governor is epistemology. How are we sure of what what we know? And how Wait, that's that's that?
3: philosophy. Yeah. Epistemology.
2: Yeah. We, yes. Which is a word that no one likes but it means something it's the echo chamber and what i found in trying to change a trumpster's mind is not go into policy talk about the person because that's the problem uh, in my mind and that's occasionally i've won that debate it's hard but you know it's not going to be on piling on more uh, statistics and numbers and this and that on policy it's really uh, on the uh, meta issue of a personality in my mind
3: D- Doctor, is it uh, just to to maybe I'll get towards the end of this? Two last questions. One is, is it possible that the brain can get too too crowded? Number one, you know, when you're really really busy, you got a million things going on. And your wife says, "Why didn't you stop and do what I told you," and you say, "Well, because my brain was, you know, it was too much stuff in my brain." Number one, <laughs> and number two, is there is there also an ability for an individual? to keep your brain active? In other words, you know, as you age, is it possible to, you know, these, whether it's puzzles or whether it's reading or, so those two things, what, what do you have to say about that? Yeah,
2: so the first thing is actually pretty straightforward. So absolutely, the reason we sleep, remember we talked about this yeah. theory of sleep, eight hours a day, seven, six for some people, everyone does it humans do it, birds do it, flies do it. Why do we need to sleep? And one of the most compelling reasons is because we need to sleep in order to forget the clutter. The extraneous information, our brains are sticky with the ability to remember too much stuff. This comes back to social media. And what sleeping does is it engages in active forgetting the mechanisms we talked about at the get-go and it's interesting john it, you know the, these studies have been performed uh, in soldiers sometimes what happens when someone is sleep deprived they don't become uh they don't lose their memory they lose their forgetting they become psychotic with an mm-hmm. overflow of information so that's i think pretty straightforward on, um, I'm sorry, the second question, John.
3: Is there, you know, the keeping the brain active, even, you know, as you go through life, is there ways in which to, it's like a muscle, right? I mean, uh, that's what I'm saying. If it, you, it, you lose your muscle, you atrophy, you get old, you, 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 you can't walk up and down stairs like you used to. So, you know, the premature efforts to try to keep the brain really active in that part of the brain that you need to activate in order to fend off some of these diseases.
2: Absolutely there's something called resilience uh, actually uh, run uh, a lot by a colleague of mine Jakob Stern this idea that you know the spare tire idea as we age we might all sustain some hits but if we have more tires if we will be more resilient in the face of that the way to now the question is how to bottle that how do i live my life to make sure that my brain is resilient in the eventuality of a disease There, it's not perfectly clear, but things that are clear are staying cognitively engaged. Education matters. Socializing matters. Uh, Preventing cardiovascular risk factors like diabetes and heart disease uh, um, and diabetes matters. So there's starting to be a clear understanding. uh, Exercise matters. So definitely engage the brain. Maintain its health as much as possible. That will clearly uh, reduce the odds of one suffering from the eventuality of having a neurodegenerative
3: our, our great Surgeon General has been focused on something. In fact, uh, Jordan, I think we might have him out here in Columbus uh, for a visit to our, our mental health operation. Um, and he focuses a lot on loneliness. That's sort of consistent with what you were saying about socializing. So loneliness is a major problem in this country, isn't it? And nobody wants to admit that they're lonely. I asked somebody the other day you know, he he was divorced, or he was divorced, doesn't have any kids. And I asked him, I said, are you lonely? And I was like, I mean, he couldn't believe I asked him the question. Well, I don't know. I I don't know if I'm, no, I don't think I'm lonely. You know, that's a big issue, isn't it, in our society today?
2: Absolutely. And it was an issue that by necessity was worsened during COVID, the, the social isolation, uh and it is a dominant issue if i have a patient who presents and is depressed the first thing i ask is about loneliness remember my patients are a little bit older one of the 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 issues of people living longer that those who make it into their 90s are lonely because their other friends and family haven't been so successful it is a real problem so I, i encourage you to focus and focus on this in future podcasts absolutely
1: in talking about the benefits of uh forgetting i'm wondering at what point does forgetting become a problem like when when should people be concerned
2: right and this gets back to something maybe i'd like to end on emphasizing this book is not god forbid one of those books that poetizes pathology i have a disease and there's a silver lining I, i don't believe that and it's not my temperament this book is about a clear distinction between pathological forgetting and normal forgetting pathological forgetting as a rule of thumb uh, can be defined as a worsening of your own baseline. If you're a 40, 50, 60, 70-year-old, and you notice that your memory is worse, that's not normal forgetting. Normal forgetting is what you were born with and what you experienced in your teens and 20s and 30s. And so if you have pathological forgetting, the first recommendation is to consider seeing a doctor to make sure that you get the diagnosis right.
1: right. Well, Scott's book, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering, It's available now wherever you get your books. Scott, thank you so much for talking to us.
2: Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. Hey,
1: everybody. Jordan here, uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of TreeFort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. TreeFort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producers, Oscar Guido. Associate producer, Lee Albanese. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort. With production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Sound editing by Abigail Sullivan. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, <laughs> Lindsay Whistler, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by ACAST.